scriptures and to develop proclaimers of good news. And today, Andrea is preaching um, for the second time. This time she's got her notes, so we're excited about that. Uh, but let's, let's pray for her and for this time. Lord, we bless you and thank you for our sister, your daughter, Andrea, that you have birthed this week hope, faith, and love in as she prepares to preach. So God, endow her and with the unction of your spirit, open our hearts, unstop our ears. May we receive the good seed today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. The Lord be with you. Also with you. Thank you. So this morning, um, well, as I was meditating on this text, um, pretty early on, I sensed that uh, Scott and Alicia Lemming's story would be part of the sermon, however the sermon came together. And if you haven't had a chance to meet Scott and Alicia, they were up here leading music this morning. Um, they're right over here. And their little, you can see like their little daughter, daughter Delia running around and she's back with the younger kids. But um, I mentioned this to the Lemmings, and when I did that I wanted to share their story, they were enthusiastically supportive about me doing this. And so Scott and I chatted one Saturday morning over FaceTime, and I just listened um, a little bit more to where they've been over the past couple of years. Uh, so before they moved to Indianapolis, they lived in Southern California, and Scott taught Bible and English at a private Christian school there. And as he had the opportunity to teach and study the Bible, he started finding that he himself was being reoriented to what the gospel means in our lives and um, how it looks in our lives, and especially as it relates to issues of justice and issues of privilege. So when they made the move out here to Indianapolis, Scott decided to get into a job teaching in an inner city school where he felt like he could live out the gospel more faithfully. And he said to me, um, he felt like he was leaving his comfortable place of teaching about what Jesus cared about to actually living into what Jesus cared about. And then he kind of laughed at himself when he told me that he went into this job as like the woke white guy in the inner city school. Um, and then he said, I lasted three days. After three days, I was going home overwhelmed and crying and just feeling utterly defeated. And he knew that if he'd been a single guy and he could put 100% of his energy into it, he could have powered through it and he could have thrived and he could have done it. But he had a family. And he was coming home every day feeling completely used up and feeling like he couldn't be present, present for Alicia and for Deliah. And so he knew that it would cost too much for him to stay in that job. So he ended up leaving and putting in his notice. And thankfully, he was able to find another temporary teaching position um, after that. But as you can imagine, he had to work through a lot of issues of um, feeling a lot of failure about that experience and feeling a lot of shame. And he even had a dream at the end of that school year, which was about last year in the spring, that he had to go back to the school. Um, and these kids who had been abandoned time and time and time again, he had to face them and answer them, um, answer that, that leaving them behind like they had known. So we're going to return to part two of the Lemming story shortly, but I want to pause and um, think about how we can, I think we can all relate to Scott's story. 
um, many of us have been taught ideas um, about what it means to change the world. And we've been given pictures of what it means to change people's lives and what it means to live out the gospel faithfully. Um, we know examples like Mother Teresa and Martin Luther King Jr. and even Christians around the world who die every day because they follow Jesus. So we're constantly reminded of these ideas of costliness and self-sacrifice, these certain forms of those things that have become kind of an axiom in Christianity. But then we find ourselves in our actual lives not living up to that, those pictures of faithfulness. And we can often feel like the road of following Jesus, rather than being a road of joy and abundant life, is a road of failure and shame. So today we proclaim the good news that Jesus offers to us again and again, the opportunity to encounter the presence of God in all the stuff of our lives and to hear his call to participate in the work he's already doing to redeem and renew all creation. Uh, when we look at our gospel reading today, we see that this is a story about when Jesus calls the first disciples in the book of Luke. And um, for a lot of us, this feels like a little bit more of a familiar Bible story, I think, because we, are, uh, we do see so many examples of Jesus calling disciples in the Gospels. And many of the details in this Gospel story are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So we're a little bit more familiar with it. And so here we see Jesus is teaching a large crowd at the Lake of Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee, sitting in Peter's boat. Uh, when he's finished, he tells Simon to put out the net into the deep water. And Simon says, Master, we've worked hard all night. We haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they do, they catch this incredible haul of fish. And then it's at that point that Jesus falls at Jesus' knees. And I want to pause here to unpack a couple of really significant things. Um, about the way that Peter reacts to Jesus and the way that Jesus responds to Peter. So when um, Peter addressed Jesus as master at the beginning of this conversation, it's not like he was saying, sir, like he's passing by him on the street or he ran into him at the grocery store or something like that. Um, if we remember the chapter that immediately preceded this, Jesus was in Nazareth, his hometown, which is where Becky and Ben both preached um, the last couple of weeks, and then he goes down to Capernaum, and he's teaching with authority in the synagogue, in Peter's synagogue. And he, in Peter's synagogue, he casts out a demon, and then people are amazed at all of these things that Jesus is doing. And then we see that Jesus actually goes and stays at Peter's house and does this work of healing for Peter's mother-in-law. So Peter knew Jesus at this point, and when he calls him master, it is a term of honoring him and honoring the role that he's already doing in their community. Um, but something changes when Peter sees this incredible haul of fish that Jesus instructs him toward. And we read in verse 8, When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Now, this type of reaction isn't isolated to just this interaction between Peter and Jesus. We see it several times in Scripture, actually. Um, we see a form of this in our Isaiah, Isaiah reading today. I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. It's a reaction we see in Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down. In Daniel, I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. 
in Revelation, when I saw him being Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. In all of these places, when people encounter the glory of God, the real physical presence of God, they express fearfulness, they fall face down. And this is exactly what Peter does when he sees this astounding catch of fish. He, re- he realizes he's not just encountering a teacher. He's not just encountering a physician healer. He is encountering the glory of God. He is encountering the very real physical presence of God in Jesus. And so as I've been meditating on this text, I really felt myself butting up to this question because I thought Jesus knew... he. Uh, or Peter knew Jesus as a teacher, and he knew him as a physician. He had seen Jesus teaching with authority in his synagogue. He had seen Jesus casting out a demon. He saw Jesus healing his mother-in-law. So the question I felt myself butting up to was, with all of these astounding things that Peter already saw Jesus do, what is it about this catch of fish that made him recognize the glory of God in Jesus? And so... As I'm hitting this wall, reflecting on this question, I do what I often do when I'm stuck with reading scripture, which is I talk to my husband, Mike. (laughs) And uh, so I ask him this question, what is it about the catch of fish that, that Peter recognizes the glory of God in Jesus? And what he said really helped me to recognize something really compelling. And he said, expectation, that they were the expert fishermen. Jesus wasn't a fisherman, but he told them after a long night of fishing what to do, and it totally confounded their expectation. And he did it right in the middle of what they knew, of what they spent their lives doing. And so when he said that, I thought, yeah, Peter and his companions went out fishing day after day, or night after night. And some nights they probably came home with this great haul of fish, and their families and their neighbors would celebrate together because this was their survival. This is how they could feed their families. And some nights they would do back-breaking work all night long, and they would come up totally empty-handed. And they would feel defeated. And then I can hear that in Peter's voice. We've worked hard all night, and we haven't caught a thing. But then Jesus, the one he knew as the teacher and the physician healer, the one he honored by calling master, Jesus tells him where to let down the net. And they bring in such an incredible haul of fish that their nets are breaking and their boats are sinking. This is an amount of fish that they wouldn't have seen in their entire lives of fishing, that they couldn't have even imagined seeing. And that is where they see the glory of God, in the stuff of their lives in their routine, in the thing they do day after day after day. And then as Peter recognizes this real physical presence of God, um, Jesus responds to Peter by doing what God does. In Isaiah, we see, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? In Ezekiel we see, This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. The Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet. 
He said, son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites. In Daniel, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees and said, do not be afraid, Daniel. In Revelation, he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. Write, therefore, what you have seen. In Jesus' words to Peter, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Jesus does what God does. He calls Peter beyond fear and shame, and he invites him into participation into the work that he's already been doing to redeem and renew all creation. Now, when we read this um, invitation to Peter in our English, many of the English translations say, from now on, you'll fish for people. And that's kind of a nice play on the idea of the fishing imagery, but I think with that translation, we miss something really important that's really striking that's in this text. Because that word, um, fish for people, in, like, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, a really important Greek translation of the Old Testament, this same word is used in warfare contexts. And it's a word that's used to refer to sparing people from battle to catch them alive, to spare them from death. So Jesus is telling Peter, you aren't just going to capture fish anymore. You're going to capture people alive to rescue them from death. In the work that Jesus is doing, in the work that he invites Peter into, there's a rescuing and a bringing into life with Jesus, in and with Jesus. Today we proclaim the good news that Jesus offers to us again and again the opportunity to encounter the presence of God in all the stuff of our lives and to hear his call to participate in the work he's already doing to redeem and renew all creation. So to return to the Lemming story, uh, after uh, that year of the temporary teaching job, um, last, last summer, Scott was applying for like a dozen different teaching jobs. Um, and none of them were working out, and he kind of knew if I stick with this, I'm eventually, something will eventually pan out. But at this point now, after being at the table and being in DNA discipleship groups, um, Scott and Alicia were starting to ask not just what they needed to survive, but they were asking what they really cared about and what they wanted out of life. And somewhere over these three months, Scott was realizing more and more um, how important woodworking was for him, that he spent all of his time and his energy and thinking um, about woodworking. And it had been a hobby for him for a long time, but he was really starting to embrace woodworking as his vocation in life and not just his hobby. And I, um, I know it's a beautiful thing to hear Scott talk about what woodworking means to him. Um, he, when, as we were talking, he talked about how the creative process really puts him in touch with God as, the, as our creator. And, and he also um, described that he finds himself being more human when he's doing woodworking. In other words, he's being restored as a very good creation as he himself is involved in the creative process of doing something very good. So as they were talking about their employment situation, uh, Alicia suggested that Scott maybe try to look into doing a woodworking job, something that would involve woodworking. And Scott was really open to it when she said it, but he also felt that very real risk of making a total shift in his careers, in his career. And it wasn't just the risk of the financial security from when he had been teaching, 
but he recognized that there were some really important parts of his identity that were tied up uh, into him being a teacher. And the two that he especially named were that he had become a teacher because he thought that's what the world needed, and he had become a teacher because he thought that's what his dad had always wanted for him. So you could imagine that making this um, shift in career involved him processing a lot of things. <laughs> and he, um, he started out getting a job in a window-making company when, he, when they did decide to go that direction and ended up leaving that for some significant reasons pretty quickly. So in the meantime, as he's processing all of these things, he also, um, they're feeling financial pressure because they don't have a lot of income. And then like they put an offer on a house that they couldn't follow through with because they didn't have um, the proof of income. So there, was def there were definitely these other costs that were also happening um, in this process. But eventually, Scott was able to find a job in the position he's in now doing trim carpentry. And he really enjoys it and he can see like long-term how it's gonna work really well with them. But he also along the way has found some surprising areas of grace in this process. Um, one being that in conversations with his dad, he has found that his dad's actually been really supportive of him making the change because his dad recognizes how much he loves working, woodworking, how much, uh, how passionate he is about it. And ultimately he's, his dad recognizes like, this is your passion, not teaching. And so he's been really supportive. And then the other area of grace, um, I think that Scott named was that his care for justice that he's learned through this process, caring for other people, um, he's found that he is able to live into that in this position. For example, he's worked with a man who was an undocumented, is an undocumented worker from Mexico and a man from Honduras who is deaf and getting to work with them day in, day out and being a part of their lives and learning from them and him being able to give into their lives. So I've really appreciated hearing about the Lemming story over the last few months and I feel really exhorted as I see how willing they are to um, just encounter the presence of God in the stuff of their lives, to be open to encountering it, and to be open to reconsidering, considering and reconsidering and reconsidering, how does Jesus want me to participate in the redeeming work he's already doing? So I came to faith in a tradition where um, spirituality was very measured by action. So there was kind of this unconscious hierarchy of spirituality that I don't think anyone would have named, but as I reflect on it, I can see that like at the bottom, of course, was saying the prayer that got you like into the camp, right? So that's like the very bottom of the hierarchy. And then right above that is like, you're the regular old Christian and you volunteer in your church. So you're good. That's even better than saying the prayer. But then even better than that is like when you're a church leader. And then even better than that is if you're a pastor but if you're a missionary, that is where it's at. And if, lest you think that's at the top of the hierarchy, if you are a missionary in Africa, you have made it. So I, uh, as I've been meditating on this te text, I realize that that kind of spiritual hierarchy combined with my own personality and inclinations have done some really bad work in my soul. Um, and it's easy for me to fall into thinking that the most grandiose visions that I have of what it means to follow Jesus, that's what faithfulness looks like. And if I don't live up to that, then I failed. Um, 
when I read the text, they left everything and follow him, I feel really inspired. And I'm like, I want to do that. I want to leave everything and follow Jesus. And then I look at my life and I go, but I haven't left everything and followed Jesus. And all of the five-year plans that I've had over the last however long that I thought would like really live out what that looked like, none of them have panned out. So I need the reminder today that following Jesus isn't about the thing that I did or failed at doing. It isn't about saying the prayer or putting myself in the hardest place that I can imagine or even not doing any of those things. Jesus invites me and Jesus invites us again and again to encounter the presence of God. And again and again and again, he invites us to participate in the redeeming work that he is already at work doing. And for some people, that may be in Africa. And for some people, like our dear friend Nancy, that may be in Africa and Eastern Europe and Japan. And for some people, that may be in woodworking. It's wherever we find ourselves. And for me, right now, all of it looks pretty mundane. And one of my favorite books is um, this book, The Quotidian Mysteries, Laundry, Liturgy, and quote-unquote Women's Work. And I think for me, following Jesus um, very much looks like a passage in this book. And so I wanted to close by um, sharing this quote. Um, Norris is quoting St. Ignatius Loyola, who says, It is not only prayer, or I would say spirit, something we've labeled a spiritual practice. It is not only prayer that gives God glory, but work. Smiting on an anvil sawing a beam, whitewashing a wall, driving horses, sweeping, scouring, everything gives God some glory. If being in his grace, you do it as your duty. To go to communion worthily gives God great glory, but to take food in thankfulness and temperance gives him glory too. To lift up the hands in prayer gives God glory, but a man with a dung fork in his hand, a woman with a slop pail, give him glory too. God is so great that all things give him glory, if you mean that they should. So as we respond to this good news today, um, I want to invite us to consider the things that are keeping us from living into it. And so in our worship folders, you'll find that there's a prayer printed, and we're going to spend some time just offering up that prayer within our community, offering it up to God. Anyone who um, wants to, to do this is welcome to participate. And the words of this prayer are, Jesus, thank you that you are at work right now, calling all people into your goodness and mercy and renewing all creation. Help me to lay down whatever it is, and see how I can participate in your work, Lord, in your mercy. And then we'll all say, hear our prayer. So I can go ahead and begin, and then anyone who wants to pray, you are welcome to. Jesus, thank you that you are at work right now, calling all people into your goodness and mercy and renewing all creation. Help me to lay down grandiose visions and impossible checklists, and see how I can participate in your work. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. prayer. 